welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dame Mary Beard, one of Britain's best-known classicists. She's Cambridge Emerita Professor and Fellow of Newnham College, Cambridge. She's a trustee of the British Museum and Classics Editor of the TLS, where for 20 years she's been writing a blog, A Don's Life. Her books include SPQR, History of Ancient Rome, the Wolfson Prize-winning Pompeii, The Life of a Roman Town, Confronting the Classics, and the best-selling Women and Power. She has presented highly acclaimed TV series, including Meet the Romans, and BBC arts shows, including Inside Culture and the landmark series Civilizations. She's been awarded an OBE and a DBE for services to classical scholarship. In this podcast, she shares what she has learnt about power. Hello, Mary, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. I know you're in the middle of editing your latest book. What's it about? (laughs) It's about what Roman emperors did at home, right? It's what you always wanted to know. Um, uh, And in a way, it's a sequel to the book I wrote of the history of Rome called SPQR, Um, which started at the beginning of Rome and went on for a thousand years. And I realised when I'd finished that, that I hadn't said very much about emperors, which is what everybody knows about in Rome. And I partly hadn't said very much about that because um, nothing very, in a a funny way, people find this odd, nothing very much happens um, for the first two or three hundred years of the Roman Empire. I mean, the empire doesn't grow. The system of government is the same. So I decided I wanted now to go back and look at, you know, how how emperors actually ran things you know what you know what imperial power from the center looked like and i wanted to do it so that it wasn't just one damn psychopath after the next you know that's how we usually get told about roman emperors one one completely deranged tyrant followed by another now look the roman empire s- survives for hundreds of years that is not possible if it was only run by deranged tyrants so my book is an answer to, so what then? How was it run? <laughs> Fantastic. And um, all your work really is looking at power, uh, or so much of it is looking at power. And I wondered what that has taught you, how you think it has changed your perspective on power now. I think it has sensitised me. I think this is where history is kind of useful. I think it sensitised me to the complicated ways that people get excluded from power. Now, you know, race, gender are two of the main ones, but it always works in a more kind of nuanced way than that. Um, you know, what is it that stops women or people of colour um, making the mark that they should be heard like they should be heard? And I think on the other side, it sensitised me to sort of how hard it is to be in power, right? You know, that that you know we kind of tend to think, and partly we're right, you know, you know, here's a bloke that's got on in the usual way. But I, I think looking at Roman emperors in particular has made me think, what does it feel like to know that you're just an ordinary guy, but you're running the world? You know? How do you square that circle? How do you, you know, what when you look yourself in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see little old you 
or do you see a big man, <laughs> right? And so I think that you you can often see those questions quite clearly in the ancient world, and then you then you spot them in you spot them in the modern. And do you get a sense of the mechanisms that people do use to to square that? I mean, you look at Putin, for example, a very little man who clearly needs to feel like a very big man. Have you have you managed to kind of get under the skin of people? Do you feel you do understand more about how they do that? No, I think I feel more puzzled by mm. it. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think. I mean, one of the things that that has struck me for a long time, but it's only part of it, is the the kind of ma- what we call mass propaganda, all the images that we th- that we see that the dynasts, dictators, you know, prime ministers, you know, having themselves photographed all the time in front of a tractor or a you know yeah. or in a hospital. Um, Partly those images are aimed at us, you know, us, the public, so we see our leader. I think they're also aimed at the leader himself. Yeah, so so he sees himself as leader. Very interesting. I think it it, it isn't only men, actually, in that case. I mean, I, I think where it struck me first bizarrely was decades ago with Lady Di, Princess Diana. And I I read a newspaper article about what she did in the mornings when she came downstairs and she went through all the newspapers, so this article said, no idea if it's Mm. true, Um, and looking for pictures of herself in the newspapers. And my first instinct was to think, how vain, how very vain. After a bit, I thought, no, she has to know that she is Princess Diana. And the way she knows she's Princess Diana is by seeing herself represented as Princess Diana. And I think that that goes for a lot um, of... I mean, I think it it reveals the anxiety of power. And, I I mean, I guess that in working on the Roman Empire, um, I've been... I've, I've come to dislike autocracy as a system more right? I think there's no way I want to go back to one man rule. Thank you very much. Um, But I have come to feel a little bit more human sympathy for the king or the emperor or the president or the prime minister. Even, okay, presidents and prime ministers aren't one man rule, but they're the closest we get to it. Yes. And have you, this might be a difficult question to answer, but what do you feel you have learnt about power that you have practised in your own life and career? Um, it's hard to know that, isn't it? I mean, I, I, yes. I, think, I think that I've learnt, and this is probably quite a gendered realisation, right, that it, it is no good to look at male structures of power and think, right, that's what I'm going to copy, you know? I see how men wield power. I mean, even the word wielding power is, you know, it's, what, do you, what else do you wield, for heaven's sake? You wield a sword, you know, it's already, it, yes. wield power is already very male, very masculine. Uh, and I think that at the beginning of my career, and this was kind of 
trivial really it's only about you know what you say when you get up in a lecture room it's not you know it's not power on the grand stage but I think to start with I I kind of thought I have to copy the men I have to do what they do I have to use their language I have to speak like they do probably like Thatcher I have to lower my voice a bit and I think that that always felt very uncomfortable because it felt that the only way a woman presented herself was by acting the part of somebody else if she wanted mm. and i think that what i what the penny dropped uh when i thought the only way that people are going to take notice of me or what i want to say you know and this isn't about you know running the country it's about you know roman history um is if i speak as me you know uh, I have got to be the person who says this. I have got to own my words. It can't be um, me pretending to be uh, some powerful male professor. And I don't know how I did it. I don't, you know, I say the penny dropped. I think it was a rather gradual dropping of the penny. Um, but I, what I now feel, and I know that I didn't when I was in my 20s, what I now feel, you know, even when I, see myself on telly or you know listen to this podcast you know I don't always think I say sensible things you know and sometimes I think oh god that wasn't very well argued but what I'm listening to is me I recognize the voice as me mm. and that I think has been crucial and you know, I, I, if I if I had any kind of instant tips on how to get to that spot, I would share them with everybody. And I don't. <laughs> I, I can sort of relive it happening to me. But it, it is absolutely, it's really important. You know, otherwise, you just see somebody else and listen to somebody else and you think, that isn't me talking. And, it, you know, it's not, you know, you, you don't have authority if, if, you're, if you're pretending to be someone you're not. Fascinating. And um, you wrote, um, I think, in Women in Power about actually wearing blue tights for your first academic interview in a ironic a sort of you know reference to being a blue stocking. So in a sense, you kind of started out as you planned to continue, didn't you, with your own sense of humour and subversive approach? I think that's right. I mean, I, I, and I do remember thinking that I'd never had an interview before. And I thought, what the hell do you wear for an academic job interview? And I was, you know, I, <laughs> I've been very lucky. I've, you know, I've applied for two academic jobs and I've got them both. And I put it down to wearing blue tights. <laughs> uh, I thought I've got to feel that I'm sort of you know, not in control of this, but there's a bit of me in this. And I thought, I know what they're going to say about me. They're going to say when I go out the room or, or think when I come into the room, now, there's a real blue stocking. And I'm going to show them by putting on blue tights that I know that's what they're thinking. And that was quite sort of that that gave me a kind of strange amount of confidence. I now reckon I, I now recommend to uh, female students, they look at me kind of they say, What advice have you got for my interview? I say, get a pair of blue tights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very eccentric. But when I explain why, I think they know. <laughs> so I want to go back to the beginning. Your your the model of work you had growing up. Your mother was a head teacher and presumably very hardworking. Your father was an architect and you've referred to him in interviews as a drunk and a wastrel. So you had two presumably quite competing models of work. Um, what what nudged you towards your mothers? Um, I think 
I think I'm a little bit of a combination because he wasn't. <laughs> I don't think so, Mary. But carry on. <laughs> and you know, she could knock it back too. Um, but he was a very engaging one, you know. So, um, and you know, if you're an architect, you do see what you've done around you. There's something quite nice about um, seeing the fruits of your labours, right? And so, you know, in you know, he, he got quite a lot done, but he, he didn't have quite the drive that my mum did. That's that's for sure. Um, you know, I think that I, I think I saw her actually, you know, being her and really saying, I've got I've got a job I want to get done here. You know, I want to. Uh, she first of all, when I was very little, taught in a village school, and then she taught in a, a much bigger school. She was the head of a much bigger junior school in Telford Newtown, as we then called it. Um, and you know, I could see her going in and actually saying, "I want, I, I want to get these kids to succeed." And you know, you have to think, how do you want to do that? And that's not just getting them there you know we didn't have sats back then but it's now it would be it's not just getting them high scores on their sats tests it's getting them to think about what it was to be a curious well-informed human being even at age nine or ten mm-hmm. and she devoted herself to that and she also saw it in a kind of political sense too that it was about about getting them to come to terms with how the world worked and and who was going to you know who you might think would be excluded and and how to break down those barriers of exclusion and inclusion and she was terribly much of the old school my goodness you know um I, I suspect that if if she was around today they would say that you know there was a bit of bullying going on with some of these kids when when mm. I meet them now you know because she'd shout at them you know she'd say you know you're going to do better than that and when I meet them as I sometimes do you know she's like, Where, was your mum the head of Dot Hill Junior School they say you know at a book festival I say yeah yes yeah, she was and they always remember that actually she was determined that they were going to succeed you know she she hadn't gone to university her parents couldn't afford for her to go to university she'd gone to teach a training college because that only cost two years fees um and you know she she felt that she would have loved to do the kind of stuff that I did um mm. she'd never had the opportunity but I think what was great about her too was that she she didn't try to live through me. You know, I never felt, oh, God, I'm succeeding. I'm, I'm going to have to succeed on behalf of her. Yeah. She was very confident that there were big and important jobs to do out there and you made the best of what you got. And when did it become clear to you that academia and the classics were the thing for you? Um, that's very hard to say. I mean, I was very interested when I was a teenager in archaeology. And we lived in Shropshire where the the Romans got and there was a lot of Roman remains. You know, and back in the early 70s, late 60s, it was still a day, a time. It was still a time when, you know, if you, you know, if, if you were 16, you could go and volunteer to be on an archaeological excavation. Um, I mean, now it's much more professionalised than that, and they don't usually want sixteen-year-olds messing things up. But uh, so I did that, and of course, it 
it did. It it was actually fascinating. You know the the you know picking a, a piece of pottery, even a grotty, horrible little bit of pot, out of the soil where someone dropped it two thousand years ago. Well, I think that's quite exciting. You know, um, and I think most people do really. And so that was one part of it. I thought there was there was something about uncovering the past that was that was exciting. But I have to say that part of it was the social life, you know. Um, I have a, an older half-brother, but effectively I was a, an only child and my parents were relatively, relatively elderly themselves. They thought it was great that I was spending my summer holidays uh, on the virtuous pursuit of the past and archaeology, which I was during the day, but in the evening we were going down the pub and doing other things that teenagers do. Uh, it was tremendous. Um, and I, I kind of got to feel that within that discovery of the past, there was a social life. There was a social life that wasn't just boring. You know, there was sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was not, um, you didn't have to be um, a nerd to, um, uh, you had to be a nerd part of the time, but you didn't have to be a nerd all the time to enjoy um, investigating, coming to terms with, looking at, and enjoying the pleasures of the distant past. I think that's what um, got me into it. I mean, I I didn't stay very long with dirt archaeology in itself. I mean, you know, camping in the rain is great when you're 18, you know, so we thought there was kind of, you know, there were nicer ways of spending the time. Um, But it it showed me the the collaborative sociality of of it. So I was, Mm. um, and, you know, I was, I went to an academic girls' school and I was good at Latin and Greek. And, um, you know, what's not to like? I think quite a lot of, you know, however uh, subversive teenagers are, they still quite like getting, um, you know, A's at the bottom of their work. And um, so it was all kind of reinforcing, really, self-reinforcing. And at what point did you decide, was it during your first degree that you decided that that you wanted to pursue academia was was there a kind of moment when it became clear for you, to you i think it is um to my discredit that i don't think i ever did you know right. it's just you know you got on the track and you did really really well and if you did really really well people thought you'd go on to the next stage and if you did really well again then you know and it so it went on now i i i hope I hope that if I'd not been enjoying it, I would have got off the track. I hope that I would have. Um, I was enjoying it, but I, it, it was never a conscious decision. Um, and I applied for a, a, a job because that's what you did. You applied for a job yeah. and, uh, and, and I got the job. And somehow I, I never had a dark night of the soul thinking, well, what do I want to do? What is for me? Um, as I say, I, I hope that I would have had the strength of character and will to give it all up if I hadn't been enjoying it. But I suppose I was enjoying it and it was a good life. And it was, you know, studying the ancient world, reading Greek and Latin literature. It is very interesting. You know, it's a- I'm sure it is. I mean, you certainly make it interesting for people. That's that's you know been one of the many things you've achieved to bring that sense of absolute fascination and curiosity to 
a huge audience. But I wanted to ask, you said you loved it. Were there aspects of academic life, and you have, of course, recently technically just retired, were there, well, you have retired from academic life, though I'm sure that you will continue with many aspects of it, giving lectures globally and continuing with your book writing and scholarship. But where, and, and it has changed a lot since you started out. Were there aspects of it you didn't like? Um, there were aspects that I thought I don't see myself there, you know. Um, I think that I was strong enough, by and large, to say that, you know. And I think that, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I started uh, I started my university course in 1973. Um, and you know, there, there is still a problem of sexism and gender bias in universities. There still is. But my goodness me, we've come on a long way. Mm. And there were people who said, and probably many more who thought, um, that, you know, women weren't actually as good at this. And I remember, um, very, I still remember vividly, actually an undergraduate student friend of mine who came into my very messy student room and picked up a piece of work I'd done, you know, which I'd thrown on the floor or something, and, uh, and started to look at it. And my uh, my supervisor had written underneath, this is really first-class work. And he turned to me and said, what, you get a first? And I thought, the only reason he's saying that, and as I say, I, I'm not giving his name because he's still a mate of mine, actually. Um, wow. um, I thought, the only reason you're saying that is because I'm a woman. You know, you have you have no idea about me. You just don't think that women are, are going to come out on top. Um, but I think, you know, I think by and large, I, my mum had put a, a bit of iron in my soul and I was at a women's college. And I think that made a huge difference because um, my teachers there were very concerned that, you know, we were going to beat the blokes, you know, come on, we were going to do better. And, you know, the, one of the points of being at a women's college was that kind of sense of not sort of support in um in in a kind of touchy feely way because there wasn't all that much of that but that sense of they were you know they were going to drive your confidence and they sure mm. did right? and uh and we were going to we were going to succeed um and uh, I, mean, I think i was taught that actually interesting i mean you've you've obviously had a, a stellar career but things from the inside rarely feel exactly as they look from the outside were there ever any low spots oh, for you loads you know I don't I don't think that anybody could possibly uh, have a career in any job without there being low spots and I mean I, I, I think one tends to constructively forget them you know because um you know if if all you remembered or if you remembered best of all the low spots um it would be you know you'd be crushed by them I think that you know for me uh the academic low spot was when my kids were very little and there was relatively little uh, allowance made for um 
a woman who got I had two kids under three for and so on they were quite close together and uh, you know of course I was having a wonderful time because it you know it's it's both sheer hell and absolutely marvelous to have uh, two small kids um and you know I wasn't going to say I'm going to just abandon you entirely and go on writing but I I I wrote very little um uh, during the time that they were um they were small and I exhausted myself you know you know go and teach in college teach for two hours come back breastfeed a baby go back teaching college you know why did one do it why do I you know um you get on autopilot a bit and people did I I knew people said oh poor Mary you know she's been so unproductive and it it was I did begin to feel that that somehow it had been a choice between you know doing what I wanted to in one sense which was having children it was great and and that meant not doing something else I wanted to do and but by a series of bits of good luck really I sort of got round that and um one of the things I started doing was reviewing first of all in the Times Literary Supplement and then in newspapers and I suddenly saw look when you've got two small kids you can't write a book you know or if you can I'm amazed I can't write a book but you can read a book and then review it and what is great about um literary journalism and reviewing is that it's not like academic publishing where you see the fruits of your labours in about three years time you know Mm. see them in a couple of weeks and I suddenly realised that if I thought about that kind of literary journalism I could still keep a a leg in a foot in you know without without just simply disappearing and going to the library all weekend and in many ways reviewing for the TLS saved me you know it I really um uh, people kind of saw that I was still there and that was very though I I still I, I know the people who used to say um oh poor Mary you know it's a pity that her career never really took off I know they, they must be laughing on the other side of their faces now they? and I, I I take great pleasure in not saying I know what you used to say but it does give me a little bit of you know I think yeah I know what you used to say mate about me and you were wrong so you when you were reviewing for the TLS you you were made classics editor and um and you you started your fantastic blog which has been going on for a Don's life. How many years has that been well, going on? It must be almost twenty years now. It's oh. it started. Well, I don't know. It started when when we called blogs weblogs. You know, you can tell how long ago that is. Very long time ago. Um, wow. And I I thought I was asked to do a blog by a weblog uh, by the then editor of the TLS, Peter Stoddart, and I was very. I thought, oh, this 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 fad isn't going to last, is it? You know? <laughs> particularly want to do it I thought it would be really dumbing down um and I thought well I'll do it because in six months it'll you know it'll all have fizzled well it hadn't fizzled and um I've quite I've enjoyed it and I think that blogs I discovered that blogs were not dumbing down that 
because you could do links and you could you could talk about all kinds of things that in in print journalism you couldn't talk about you know you couldn't say look i'm really interested in the autobiography of the emperor augustus in print journalism because people would say what you know in a blog you could give them a link to it so that they could say all oh, right i'll read that it's only a few pages then i can read the blog so i came to see it was another way and a different way of talking to people um mm. so um you know, it now. It, I mean, blogs now seem slightly old-fashioned, but you know, but I, but I persist. <laughs> how long? Because is it, it? I mean, it's how long have you got? Because you write obviously beautifully, but it doesn't take two minutes. I mean, you know, it's not a five-minute job to write a blog. How how long does it generally take you? Depends whether I've got it ready in my head. You know, mm. um, I I think that uh, I do two a week, and. It's somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half for each one. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, if it's in my head, then it's 45 minutes. But you've got to get, you know, it's getting the links and thinking, mm. you know, getting pictures where you've got the yes. right to use the pictures and all this kind of thing. So yes. quite a lot of that is is more on the sort of admin side of it. But mm. 45, between 45 and 90 minutes. Wow. And then probably that was part of what your your name was sort of beginning to be heard more and then Pompeii came along the, in 2010 yeah. the tv yeah. series obviously wonderful series what effect did that have on your life and on your teaching being famous because you were suddenly famous I think and I, I remember meeting you in London in 2013 and you know you were stopped on the street all the time yes it is it has been a change of life it has and um, uh, and uh, I'm very, very pleased that I didn't do telly till I was in my 50s. Mm. Right? I think it would have been, you know, I don't, I don't know what it would do to you if you were, you know, in your 20s and people were stopping you in, your, in the street and that kind of thing. You know, I think it would, it would change your view of yourself, really. Whereas for me, it, I, I kind of thought, and I still think, Look, this telly is quite good fun, and it's quite you know, it's quite interesting, and it's and it's great to be able to um, uh, talk to a, to a, a wider group and a different group of people, and you know you're doing that because they come up and they tell you that they see you. But I think it's it telly is hugely more fun if you think I could give it up, you know. <laughs> you know? Yes, it's, yes. It's working for me. I just stopped doing it. You know that's and. Um, I've got plenty to do. I think if you were completely invested in telly and in and that was your career, that was how you defined yourself in such a way that um, you couldn't give up. You could, if you felt you couldn't give up, I mean, that would be a serious mm. cause of anxiety. And, you know, I, I define myself as someone who works on Roman history, a bit of Greek history. Um, you know, I retired from teaching it to undergraduates but that's what, what my job was uh, I write books and I do a bit of telly and if we had to cut out and I do a bit of telly um, you know right now I really enjoy it but I it, it wouldn't affect what I it, what what I define myself as mm, mm. And I think you know when I see some younger colleagues very anxious to get on the telly I think you know I, I think wait just a bit wait till it doesn't matter wait till it doesn't matter so much I think that's yeah. you know lots of things are nice if they don't matter to you 
Yes, absolutely yeah. right. You know? I, I want to do the telly well, but it doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't matter in that way. Mm. And you famously, obviously, uh, had, well, all women on TV. I've had, you know, lovely Twitter comments about there must be cobwebs in my vagina and things like that, which is always nice. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you had plenty of that that became quite public and and that awful so-called TV review by A.A. <laughs> Gill, which, again, was a kind of very public thing. What have you learned about dealing with this kind of misogynistic stuff that you could pass on? I think there is no substitute for being resilient. You, I mean, you just have to be. And, you know, in some ways now, resilience is an unfashionable virtue, you know, that um, people shouldn't have to be resilient. Well, sorry, I think it's a tough world out there. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, it's not that you have not to have any feelings, but you've got to stand up to the bastards. You just have to. And you have to. You you have to re- reply. You have to say no to that. And you know, I think that is really important. And I think that that what was interesting about A. A. Gill, who was a um, you know, he he was a nasty but clever writer, you know. Yeah. Um, but on this case, what he got it wrong. You know, because he got the zeitgeist wrong. I mean, I'm, yes. I'm sure that there were some people out there who thought, you know, yes, you know, he said something like, how could she possibly bring herself into our living rooms looking like that, you know, <laughs> um, et cetera, et cetera. And I, there must have been some people that agreed with him. But actually, the, the, the scales had shifted by the time he said that. And a lot of women who are actually quite socially conservative, the, the readers of the Daily Mail, didn't like what he said and I did do an article for the, for the mail because I thought what's the point of doing this for the Guardian you know everybody in the Guardian is oh. going to agree with me you know let's let's you know take this out to people who might not agree with me and I wrote an article about it very soon after for the mail and I said something like the thing is what does he think a woman in her mid-50s looks like what does he think she looks like? Well, actually, she looks a bit like me. You know, there's variety. But, that you know, I am a woman in my mid-50s. You know, I haven't had work done. That's what we look like. And when I wrote this, I did, I thought, I'm going to have to look under the line in the Daily Mail to see what the, uh, what the comments are. Uh, and I fully expected them to say, oh, God, she looks like the back end of a bus, you know, this kind of stuff. Um and, you know, yeah, OK, there were a few who said, yeah, I'm with Gil here. But the vast majority were on my side, you know, and said, you know, and that's because they were 50-something women too, you know, and they knew what it was like to be written off like that. And they yeah. wanted to say, no more, sunshine, no more. Absolutely. And the women who were stopping you in the streets when when I met you, they were they were all I mean, you must be thanked all the time for what you are doing. Does that put a pressure on you? I mean, do you feel you always have to be polite in public as a result of that? It's it's not difficult to be polite because, you know, there must I'm sure because I see it on Twitter. There's some people who think that I'm awful, Um, uh, but they don't come up in the street. Not very many people come up. (laughs) I really dislike your television programs. So um, the people who come up to you, uh, almost, you know, without exception, 
nice and grateful and have comments to make that are interesting. So it's not difficult. Mm. It's not difficult to be nice. Harder to be very, very firm and always be nice on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite, yes. <laughs> Particularly now under its new ownership. But let's see what happens there. I mean, you, you know, you, you mentioned a minute ago, you know, there you are, professor of classics, writer, the various ways that the, the things you do and the ways you identify yourself and TV uh, and media stuff, perhaps at the end of that list. But that is an enormous amount to do. And just the fact that you write a blog twice a week on top of everything else, I think most people would look at you and think, how the hell does she do it? What is your short answer to that question? Um, it, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, and it's combined with the sense that maybe I should be saying no more, but I do say no quite a lot. Um, and I do have, you know, I do have a message I want to get out there. And that requires a bit of time and energy. I mean, luckily, I've got a supportive family, you know, and I'm not doing this with two small kids. You know, I'm doing it from, you know, the relative comfort of retirement, semi-retirement, um, or from an academic profession that is supportive of that. Mm. Um, and I think you've just got to keep at it. Don't let the buggers get you down. Amazing. And you, you, I mean, you've, you've been awarded an OBE, a DBE, I think recently um, a Lion Medal from New York Library, um, a Lifetime Achievement from the Times Higher Education Awards. I mean, it seems to be like an award a day, practically. Do you ever get, I mean, how do you, do you feel differently about them now? Do you just think, oh, that's nice, another award? Or do they really mean something to you? I think they mean something. Um, it's partly, you know, I don't mean to sound sort of too sort of falsely modest, but, you know, what I feel pleased at is that someone who really works primarily on ancient Greece and ancient Rome um, is getting an award for that. Right? Yes. And that that's the most pleasing thing, you know, that, you know, because it somehow feels like you're getting it on behalf of everybody who still does that. And, you know, it it's a nice reminder that actually it's 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, uh, Greeks and Romans still matter enough that people are interested in what I say. And so it doesn't feel, you know, it, it doesn't really feel like, oh, here's another award for Mary, haven't I been good? It feels like the project that I'm involved with, which is keeping an interest up in that, and I'm not the only one to do it, um, that still matters to people. And so that that's why I think it's it's great. Well, you have done more for that than anybody in my lifetime than and I don't think anybody could could, you know, mention anyone else who has done a fraction as much. So congratulations, Mary, on an incredible achievement and thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been an well, absolute delight to have you. Thank you, Christina. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co. This is the last in the current series of The Art of Work. 
There are now 26 interviews to listen to and 24 in its previous incarnation work interrupted. So do catch up on any episodes you've missed. My most recent book, Outside the Sky is Blue, will be out in paperback in early March next year. So do snap a copy up. In the meantime, I wish you the very best of luck in your own art of work.